Instead of focusing on winning arguments, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and marketing and how we can use them to win in the world of politics, teaching you how to meet people where they're at on the issues they care about. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Well, happy Thursday there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you for joining us on, of course, another fun-filled episode. We are going to be digging into the zombie economics. Yes, zombie economics of inflation and unemployment. But... Before we get there, I want to give a special shout out to today's sponsor, and that is the Expat Money Summit 2022. You can head over to briannicholsshow.com forward slash expat, and you can sign up for your free tickets for our awesome virtual summit November 7th through November 11th, five days, 30 expert speakers, watch for a week, reap the benefits Four generations. Join our good friend Mikhail Thorpe. And yes, 30 expert speakers, November 7th through 11th. One more time, BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash expat. Folks, returning to the program today, yeah, I talked about it. We're digging into those zombie economics of inflation and unemployment. Returning to the program, the professor himself, Alex Salter. Welcome back to the Brian Nichols Show. Brian, it's great to be back. Thank you. Alex, it's great to have you back, my friend. Thank you for joining us, and thank you, obviously, for helping talk some sense into the chaos that we see in the world today, especially as it pertains to our economics, our monetary policy. People are seeing it on the news, and now they're seeing it in real life. They're seeing it at the gas pump. They're seeing it at the grocery store. Inflation, cost of living, it's hitting hard. But before we get there, Alex, let's reintroduce yourself to the Brian Nichols Show audience. Who are you and why are we looking to you to explain what's going on in this world of inflation? You know, that's never really been made clear to me. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm an economics professor at Texas Tech University. Guns up, go Red Raiders. And uh, money and macroeconomics is one of my specialties. I wrote my dissertation on monetary policy. My first book is about monetary policy. Uh, it's called Money and the Rule of Law. I and my co-authors spend a fair amount of time uh, critiquing Federal Reserve policy. So if you're a skeptic that our economic technocrats, in fact, are as good at their job as they claim to be, I encourage you to check out my book. I think that you'll like what you see. Alex, you recently wrote an article over at The Hill. You co-authored this with uh, Philip Magnus, and you talked about the zombie economics of inflation and unemployment. And to set the preface, I wanted to read a bit from this. You said the illusion of a permanent and controllable trade-off between a strong dollar and a strong labor market persists in various centers of elite opinion. Lisa Cook, one of President Biden's nominees to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, confidently asserted the importance of, quote, the trade-offs between inflation and unemployment for monetary policy. The New York Times recently promoted similar worries that the current focus on taming inflation could come at the cost of unemployment. In a separate Times column, the one and only Paul Krugman depicted a huge surge of or I'm sorry, a huge surge of unemployment as the hefty price tag of reigning in our last major inflationary crisis some 40 years ago. And other media outlets routinely depict tight money as certain pathways to skyrocketing unemployment, when some of the most important forums in the world host some of the most elementary economic errors in the world, say that 10 times fast, Watson, something has gone very, very wrong. Alex Salter, it has indeed gone very wrong. Outline for us, what has gone wrong? Oh, geez. How long do we have? 20 minutes? (laughs) We got about 20 minutes. See what we can do. Okay. So we'll fix all of macroeconomics in 20 minutes. That sounds good. In policymaking circles, public economics commentators, those sorts of positions, there persists this myth that there is a steady and exploitable trade-off between unemployment and inflation. 
The idea is you can quote unquote run the economy hot, in which case you're going to get low unemployment, but you have to put up with high inflation. Or if you want to try and bring down inflation, you have to put up with not so good labor markets, higher unemployment. In brief, this view is bogus. There's nothing to it. There is absolutely no reason why you can't have strong labor markets and low and stable inflation. You can even have strong labor markets with no inflation. Look, we can have 4% or less unemployment with 0% inflation. We can have 4% unemployment with 10% inflation. Money and specifically the rate at which we're running the printing presses really doesn't matter in terms of the fundamental economic health of the nation. In the long run, it's about living standards. It's about how good our workforce is, how many machines we have, whether our laws and institutions are conducive to commerce, and how many green pieces of paper we have running around the economy doesn't really affect that. So we really need to put this idea of a exploitable and permanent trade-off between unemployment and inflation to bed. It's long past time we move on from this, frankly, dark age macroeconomics. Well, then I guess one has to ask the question then, Alex, where on earth did this old notion, this, as you mentioned, this zombie notion uh, really come from? Because it sounds like it is, in fact, pretty resoundingly busted, debunked economics. Where did it come from and why is it still prevalent in economic conversations today? It started with this idea in economics that we call the Phillips curve. There was an economist in the middle part of the 20th century when old school Keynesianism was in its heyday, right? It was the new hot thing in academic macroeconomics. An economist named Phillips discovered a strong negative correlation between, on the one hand, a measure of unemployment, and on the other hand, a measure of wage growth, which was a proxy for inflation in all markets. Since what's going on in labor markets at that time, pretty well predicted what was going on to final prices and goods and services more generally. From that, two economists who are actually quite legendary in the field of money and macro, Paul Samuelson and Bob Solo, came up with this idea of a permanent, again, and exploitable from the purposes of policy, trade-off between inflation and unemployment. This idea was central bankers, fiscal policymakers could sort of pull this lever and move us along this uh, stable trade-off between inflation and unemployment, run the economy a little bit hotter. That would be good for lowering unemployment, but raising inflation, run the economy a little bit cooler. You'd get a slower dollar depreciation, but you'd have to put up with some a little more uh, turmoil in labor markets. And to make a very long story short, they were observing what we now call in economics a spurious correlation. There is no permanent trade-off between these kinds of variables because once the public figures out that policymakers are trying to game the economic system, they change their expectations, right? Once everybody figures out that the central bank is going to try and run the printing presses to get unemployment lower, everybody just bakes in higher anticipated inflation into their contracts, into their wage bids, into their long-term financial investments, and ultimately you get no corresponding increase in real economic activity. You can fool people once, but once you try and permanently exploit that trade-off, people are going to realize they're going to get wise to the game, and any trade-off is going to be ultimately illusory and in the short run. And in fact, if you've even managed to create a decrease in unemployment because you've created quote-unquote surprise inflation, that's only because you've surprised people, right? The central bank promised to conduct monetary policy commensurate with, say, 2% inflation, but then it ran the printing presses way hotter. And so it created 5% inflation. Yeah, in the short run, you might get a small boost to economic activity, but that's only because the central bank, frankly, lied to people. It said, hey, we're going to do X. And in fact, they did something very different than X. So yeah, if you 
give people a misleading picture of your intentions, it turns out you can fool them. But that only works in the short run. People will eventually get wise. Bingo. We talk about this in sales all the time because once uh, trust is eroded, then the uh, the true authentic relationship, it's dead. I mean, it's a DOA, literally. So let's go back to this Phillips curve, that, right? And and we you talk about this, and I guess the question <laughs> I have is how how on earth is it still accepted today? Because shortly thereafter, and you and Philip Magnus mentioned this in your article there over on the Hill, that it was pretty resoundingly rejected <laughs> by uh, pretty noted economic thinkers, namely amongst them, Milton Friedman. I mean, we all have heard of Milton Friedman and have really fought back and they, they did fight back and, and squish this idea. And to your point, it was showing before your eyes. You couldn't not see it. And we talk about this in sales. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. So I guess I ask it, is it just that people have bought into the myth almost and now they are, are almost married to the, the narrative? Or, or what is it that causes people to still be tied to this very, very old, outdated, and frankly, backwards way of thinking? Great question. So I blame two kinds of people. First, I blame economic and financial journalists because frankly, they don't have the training and the expertise to know better. And second, I blame economists who have become public intellectuals but really have no, frankly, no background in macroeconomics and monetary policy. So Paul Krugman is a perfect example of this. Paul Krugman is a trade economist. He won the Nobel Prize for his work on international trade, which is quite good and respectable. Since then, he set himself up as an authority on business cycles and macroeconomic stabilization policy. And frankly, he doesn't have any scholarly chops on this. There's no clear evidence that he's specialized in it that he's put in the work to learn the literature. It's just not something that's a mainstream idea anymore. If you talk to the economists who actually specialize in monetary economics and macroeconomics, and you bring up the Phillips curve as if it's a serious idea, they laugh at you, right? They sort of hide their, you know, hide their face in their elbow and snicker a little bit because it's a very gauche idea. There's really nothing to it. It's not at the cutting edge. It's not a serious idea. And really the only people who think it's a serious idea are people who don't know any better. So let's go to, oh, if I can get my mouse to work here, there we go. Um, if if uh, we can go towards today, we're seeing the conversation continue today. And one of the things we're seeing is some folks like Elizabeth Warren out there who are firmly promoting these very old, outdated ways of thinking. So let's talk about combating this this just outdated myth, uh, way of not only thinking, but also back to the point, this backwards way of thinking. What's your argument when you're seeing Elizabeth Warren out there leading the charge and, and really fighting her fight from more of the progressive uh, side of things, but using this as the the crux of her argument, really? Um, what are you finding as the best way to almost kryptonite her uh, to her argument there? I'll be honest, I don't pay very much attention to the good senator from Massachusetts. <laughs> Uh, her latest thing is that corporate greed is causing inflation. And of course, that's nonsense because you would need to suddenly suppose that corporations have all of a sudden gotten more greedy because you'd need a change in greed to explain a change in inflation. I'm an economist. I think that corporate greed in terms of profit seeking is pretty much constant. So you can't explain a change in a variable like inflation with a constant unchanging variable like corporate greed. So the notion that this is just profiteering or anything like that is just stark raving nonsense. Really, we should stop paying attention to politicians, both right wing and left wing when they talk about this stuff, because politicians don't have any incentive or any interest in coming up with a nuanced and economically rigorous explanation for what's going on. 
They're trying to get reelected. They're trying to build electoral coalitions, which basically means riling up the base and maybe persuading a couple of people in the middle. That's not at all the same thing as truth seeking. They're engaged in a very different project. We can debate the merits of that project, but ultimately when it comes to serious economic issues, I don't take Elizabeth Warren very seriously. And for that matter, I don't take someone like Ted Cruz very seriously. You don't need to listen to them. You can ignore the politicians. I promise your life gets a whole lot better. Also, Ted Cruz, I'm still not convinced that he might be Kevin from The Office. We're not entirely certain. That was never officially discussed and debunked there back in in 2016. So we got to pay attention to that. But what we're going to do is next, Alex, we're going to go ahead and discuss specifically um, how we can go ahead and actually solve the problems that we see here today. But before we go there, wanted to go ahead and uh, remind folks, if they have not had the chance, to head over to briannicholshow.com, sign up for our morning sales huddle once per week, usually around Friday or so. I am in your inbox with my uh, weekly sales tip, the same type of tips I would use with my sales teams to help lead them to their success, hitting their quota, and helping lead to company-wide success. I can do the same for you. So head over to briannicholshow.com, sign up today. And oh, by the way, I'll send over a free copy of my ebook, Four Easy Steps You Can Implement Now to Sell Liberty to Friends and Family as well. So Alex, back to the question at hand. What's the answer here, right? If we gave you, Alex Salter, the magic wand, and, and you won't have to listen to Elizabeth Warren and all the other uh, progressive floozies on, and, or, or tech, you know, the, the Texas yeehaws like Ted Cruz uh, out there um, in, in, in Capitol hey Hill. Hey buddy, to, I'm from Texas. I resent that remark. Uh, okay, I, I'm from upstate New York, which is basically like uh, you know, the South, but in northern New York. So I kind of feel <laughs> like I'm part of you. So I'm, I apologize. Uh, no, that's but, okay. I'm actually a Los Angelino originally so i'm like a fake texan so you're so you everywhere so, you, so you're you're um as our friend steve harrison would call you you're an anywhere um versus maybe a somewhere um which is okay you can be anywhere uh but anyways going back to the question right what is the answer we give you the magic wand what would you recommend as the remedy to the problem we're seeing here with the rampant unemployment and inflation well unemployment's not too bad right now that's right? true we're only at 3.6 percent which is actually very low by historical standards well really so right quick, now can I, can, I, labor- can i preface that is it it's more of a question to myself. Is that really the real number? Because we've seen the the folks who aren't even looking for work. They've, you know, I think that number has jumped up exponentially, right? It, whereas that's not counted towards unemployment. It's about a percentage point higher than it was uh, before the COVID crisis. It sort of jumped and stayed there. That's big in terms of labor force participation, in terms of jumps, right? You compare it to historical jumps or changes in the labor force participation rate, right? The people who are looking for a job and are in the labor market in the first place. But in an absolute sense, I don't think it's large enough to obscure the fact that right now labor markets are actually doing okay. I'm much more concerned about inflation than I am about Mm. labor markets. And the solution to inflation is simple. You ultimately have to get control over central bank policy, federal reserve policy. If you want to bring down inflation, shrink the balance sheet. At minimum, make sure it's not growing as fast as it was after COVID hit. Get the Federal Reserve to not only stop buying new assets, but get it to not purchase new assets, right? When the various debt instruments that it has on its books mature, don't have them buy more. Shrink the balance sheet. Get the liquidity out of the system. And for goodness sake, get the central bank to commit to an actual policy rule that binds its hands, Right. Everybody made a big ado about how the Fed switched to an average inflation target back in August 2020. 
the idea was, well, we're not going to shoot for 2% inflation every single year. We're going to shoot for 2% inflation on average over the very long term. Now, there are actually some good arguments on paper why you would want that kind of a regime, targeting inflation on average instead of just trying to hit 2% every single year. The problem is those arguments are only persuasive or beneficial if you assume that central bankers are omniscient and perfectly benevolent. They aren't, right? They're just ordinary people, very well-trained people, but ordinary people like you and me, right? They have less than perfect information and they face less than perfect incentives. You really don't want to give discretionary central bankers any more power over the economy than you can give them at minimum, right? And so I'm actually a strong advocate of completely constraining what the Fed can do with a strict rule that it cannot interpret its way out of or wiggle out of, basically give them a goal and hold them accountable if they achieve it. Man. Right now what we need oh, is to ahead. actually get that liquidity out of the system. And we need to, I would actually argue that we need to get back to conducting monetary policy to the way that we used to do it even before the 2008 financial crisis. Basically get out of this system of the Federal Reserve changing the amount of interest that it pays to uh, depository institutions for holding their bank accounts at the Fed, basically keeping liquidity tied up there, get back to what's called the corridor system for monetary policy, where you have more market interest rates that are actually determinative in capital allocation. Because right now what you have is a giant balance sheet. The Federal Reserve owns about $9 trillion in assets. It is affecting capital allocation. It is going to become politicized if it continues. We're quickly running out of time to get control over the central bank, and that's not going to be good for anybody. I was going to say, if only, if only, man, where are going to find this? A book that talked about you know, money and the rule of law. Is there a book out there, Alex, that talks about this in detail? Uh, I'm pretty sure that I would have heard about it if it were out there. So I'm going to say no. But someone should write that book. I bet it would be pretty good. Well, if they, somebody was you and they were to write that book, what would that book look like? Hypothetically, it would be titled Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. It would hypothetically be published by Cambridge University Press. And in theory, you could buy it on Amazon or you could just go to my website and find it there too. Well, what's that website? <laughs> www.awsalter.com. Uh, it's one of the first links on my homepage. The book has its own website where you can find endorsements from other prominent economists. It'll take you to Amazon where you can purchase it. You can also uh, purchase it directly from Cambridge University Press if you had so, uh, if you had the desire to do so. Uh, usually I plug it on social media too, but I recently got off all social media, got rid of Twitter, got rid of LinkedIn and Facebook and all that. I was just spending too much time on it. So it was time <laughs> for it to go. It, it's, it's good to uh, decompress sometimes. People actually are surprised to learn that I'm actually not on social media as much as they think. A lot of the stuff I have posted is just like automated posts and like scheduled posts. I'm rarely, I don't have the time to be on social media. So a lot of the You're times, the smart one. Yeah, well, you, you got to try to be able to leverage it, I guess, for the industry I'm in, in the world of sales, but also what we're doing here. So, yeah, it's a, it's an unfortunate reality. I think we're seeing a lot of the technology that's advancing here, especially with the advent of Web3. It's going to make a lot of the problems we're seeing maybe change a little bit because the incentive structures are going to change behind the scenes. But those conversations, we're having those with a lot of fun tech folk. We'll save those for another day. But with that being said, obviously, folks, this is a conversation that we've been having here with Alex, and it's important for us to continue having. We've heard many a time the importance of us focusing on monetary policy, and Alex actually is presenting a real tangible solution to solving that problem, and it starts with, yes, addressing the problem at the root cause 
cause, and that is at the source. In this case, it is addressing the problems with the Fed because, uh, I'm sorry, you can't really base any any rules on some discretion, you know, on a political wind. It doesn't really yield a positive way for society to move forward, for anything to really move forward. We're seeing this in the economy right now. So many businesses, I mean, Alex, my day job for the world of sales, I'm hearing it time and again. Number one, inflation has been hitting businesses so hard. I had one company I was talking to, <clears throat> they do metal um, like for, for cars, for uh, retailers for cars. And one of the issues they've had is because the markups that they've had to endure, that now they've had to upcharge like, I think it was 300% on a specific like riveted piece. And that alone has dropped their sales by like 120%. Um, and like, this is, this is just the beginning of what we're seeing with companies across the board who are now, it, I mean, you can only inflate the bubble arbitrarily and artificially to, to say the least so much. And now we're at the point where I think it, it's ready to pop. So let's, I don't mean to doom and gloom everybody, but like, what should we be prepared for? And I know this is, this is the question I think it's more so because we have a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs who listen to the program. And I know for a fact that they're trying to plan. They're trying to prepare. And, and obviously, this is no financial advice, folks. This is more just us trying to spitball what's the best plan of action based on what we think is going to happen um, from a more high-level perspective, right? So, Alex, what would you say is the best plan of a, a, a course of action, I guess, for business owners and entrepreneurs? And also, what do you expect to be the ultimate outcome of the current trajectory if things continue the way they're going? So much of it depends on what the central bank actually does. Are they actually going to find the discipline necessary to shrink the balance sheet and normalize monetary policy? Or are they going to continue to pretend to do those things and talk a big game about, oh, we understand the importance of inflation, but not really make any of the hard choices necessary to get it under control? And ultimately, I think that the public conversation around this whole topic is fundamentally misguided. We're having this debate between two camps. You have the easy money camp and you have the tight money camp, and we're just arguing between those camps. The point, though, is that both of the poles of that debate are artificially limited. You need to get out of that paradigm where we're talking about whether we want tight money or easy money. What we want is rule-bound money. We actually want something to be in place to more or less put monetary policy on autopilot. Because if monetary policy were on autopilot, if it had to follow a strict rule, the market would know what to expect. We would know what was going to happen to the purchasing power of the dollar. We would be able to put those expectations into the various contracts we write, whether in terms of our wage asks as workers or in terms of our capital investments as businesses. Until and unless we get that, we're going to continue this pernicious game where we're watching the Fed and the Fed is watching us and everybody's trying to fool each other. That's just a waste. There's nothing productive that comes out of that, but that's the way that we've done it for the past 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and we're going to keep on doing it that way, unfortunately. Well, Alex, unfortunately, we have come to an end here of today's episode of The Brian Nichols Show, which means it's time for us to point people towards where they can continue the conversation with you. So if they want to go ahead and do that, hit us with the plug, social media, and also, you mentioned it before, let's give you a chance to mention it again, money and the rule of law. Where can folks pick up their copy today? Wherever books are sold. Now, probably not wherever books are sold, uh, but you can definitely find a copy at Amazon. You can definitely get a copy directly from Cambridge University Press. 
Uh, we're very pleased, I and my co-authors, that there is a relatively cheap paperback edition. So even though it's published by an academic press, it's not going to break your wallet, especially right now as various other price hikes are breaking your wallet. Again, you can find all of my writings at my website, www.awsalter.com. All of my popular articles are there. My academic writings are there too. Uh, if you wanted to wade into those, more power to you. Good luck to you. I'll be happy to talk to anybody about those over email. Yeah, drop me a line. I'd be happy to hear from your from your listeners. That's my fault. There we go. Yeah, it was my bad. I had him on mute because there was a dog barking upstairs and it was quite loud. Um, but no, with that being said, uh, no, we will make sure we include all those links there in the show notes for you. And uh, make sure also, folks, if you uh, do me a favor, if you enjoyed the episode, please go ahead and give this episode a share and let Alex know. And please do go ahead and give his book a purchase, Money and the Rule of uh, Law. We actually dug into the topic of the book more in detail on a past episode. Just go to briannicholshow.com where you can go ahead and search not only for uh, Alex's episode, but all 500 plus episodes. And oh, by the way, did you see yesterday's episode? We had Sarah Byrne. She's a professor over at Rochester Institute of Technology. And we talked about Biden's foreign policy and its report card, the good, the bad, and the uh, meh. Yeah, it, it, there was a lot of meh, not going to lie, um, or at least from, from this side of the table. But uh, with that being said, folks, thank you for joining us on today's episode. With that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Professor Alex Salter. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Enjoying the audio version of the show? Then you'll love our YouTube channel. Be sure to head over there and subscribe. And if you're new to The Brian Nichols Show, be sure to head to your favorite podcast catcher and click download all unplayed episodes so you don't miss one of our nearly 500 episodes that will be sure to leave you educated, enlightened, and informed. If you got value from today's episode, can you do me a favor and head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash support and leave us a $5 donation? And by the way, have you given the show a five-star review yet? If not, head to Apple Podcasts and tell folks why you listen to the program and don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe too. Follow me on social media at B Nichols Liberty. And again, if you'd be so kind, please consider making a donation to The Brian Nichols Show at briannicholsshow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. Faced with an uncertain future, many business owners and technology professionals don't have the time needed to invest in their business technology strategies. And as a result, they're afraid of their technology getting outdated and putting their company and customers' information at risk. The digital future is already here, but with all different choices in the marketplace, it's difficult to know which one will be the best fit for you and your strategic vision. Imagine having the peace of mind that your business is backed by the right technology investments that are tailored for your specific needs. Hi, I'm Brian Nichols, and I've helped countless business owners and technology professionals just like you, helping you make informed decisions about what technologies are best to invest in for your business. Voice, bandwidth, cybersecurity, business continuity, juggling all the aspects of business technology is messy. Let me help. Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash help and sign up for a free one-on-one consultation with yours truly to dig deep into where you see your company heading and how we can align your business technology towards those goals. Again, that's briannicholsshow.com forward slash help to get your simplified business technology started today.